I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Simon Whitney. He is an ethicist and family doctor. He was on the faculty at Baylor College of Medicine from 1999 to 2022. He has studied the Institutional Review Board, or IRB, system since 2007, and has spoken at national and international conferences and published in professional journals, including Pediatrics, Annals of Internal Medicine, and the American Journal of Bioethics. He's the author most recently of the book, From Oversight to Overkill, Inside the Broken System that Blocks Medical Breakthroughs and How We Can Fix It. Simon, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Mark. Aaron. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. That's all right. Much That's okay. Better, right? <laughs> no worries. Uh, maybe we can first start by defining our terms. So what is the IRB? What is its role in medical research? And who controls it or who does it answer to? Let's maybe even take one step further back and say, why is there this system in the first place? And the basic reason that there is this system is because scientists are not always smart or even moral in their decisions. That's why we got the Tuskegee syphilis experiment in which hundreds of African-American men in Alabama were followed by federal doctors to see just how bad the syphilis they had was going to get. Federal scientists followed them, tracked their developing neurological problems, they, their aortic dissections and their deaths, and they did nothing whatsoever, even after penicillin was available. It's because of tragedies and scandals like this that the government quite properly said, we have to have a system to prevent further tragedies like this. The system they set up is called the IRB system. It stands for Institutional Review Board. There's an IRB in just about every institution in the country that does medical research with human subjects. Medical schools have them, biotech companies have them, hospitals have them, and no research involving human subjects can proceed unless it gets a green light from the IRB. And this, in my opinion, is a a good thing uh, because scientists need somebody looking over their shoulder. Nobody wants to have another tragedy. So there's a good reason, and it's a, it began as a reasonable system. The problem is that over the years, it's gone off the rails, and now it does more harm than the good that it could potentially do. In fact, the harm it does is quite substantial. So maybe uh, take us through the steps of a proposed research project involving the IRB. Physician scientist comes up with a particular idea in order to start enrolling patients in a study or doing that clinical research, he or she does what exactly? How does the process usually work at most institutions? At most institutions, if you want to do research that involves people, um, you drop a proposal, you submit it to the IRB. Let's say that you want to find out um, how patients feel about making the decision between if they, have, if they have early breast cancer, they have a choice between lumpectomy plus radiation versus mastectomy, removal of the whole breast. And some patients really want to keep their entire breast. Uh, some patients r- would rather have a smaller surgery. Some patients are afraid of radiation, some aren't. So it's very much an individual choice. 
if I at Baylor wanted to study how patients make that decision by talking to patients about it, I would need to get approval from the IRB. I would need to tell the IRB, I'm interested in learning how patients make these decisions. My IRB would very likely say, what questions are you going to ask them? And the IRB would approve my specific questions and only those questions that allow me to proceed. Of course, I'd have to get a rather elaborate consent from these women to ask them these questions and record their answers. This may seem like a lot of work for a project that is not very dangerous. And that is, in fact, one of the problems. We impose the same burdens on research of very minimal potential harm as we would on tests of new vaccinations or new surgeries or new drugs. It's extended far beyond the original scope that it was intended to include. And if by any chance I want to change some of those questions, if I discover that one of the questions is confusing or, or leads to funny answers, I have to request permission to change that question. And I can't proceed until I've done that. This is why, among other things, people who are in medical training do less and less research now than they used to. Because questionnaire study like this would be easy for a fellow in, let's say, breast cancer to do during the course of their training. But with the IRB review taking months and months, often there just isn't time and people don't do the research and fellows don't get that training. It's really a shame. And the process takes how long usually? I mean, I'm sure it depends on how many resubmissions one has to do and everything, but on average, how long do, does it take for the IRB to approve a, a research project? For speedy IRBs, the, typ the typical minimum is about a month. But there are some IRBs which seem to feel that they're not earning their pay, which is usually nothing, unless they find something that needs to be improved or changed or modified and send it back for that approval or change or modification. And as a result, this proposal will take two months or three months. And it can take longer. And in fact, it can be the end of the project entirely because IRB demands can seem reasonable to the IRB but can make the project no longer possible. Hmm. And you've been on IRBs before. What goes on you know, behind the scenes? Maybe take us through that. Well, there are two behind the scenes for the IRB. The first is at the meeting, uh, the members have a uh, large file with all the proposals for that meeting in front of them. A typical IRB has maybe 15 members. They will have anywhere between a dozen and 40 or 50 protocols to review before any given meeting. And the chair will say, okay, we have a proposal here for a new intervention using Botox injections to reduce irritable bladder symptoms. There will be typically one member of the panel has read the proposal carefully and will say, well, this is not a new intervention, but they're using a new method. It seems reasonable to me. The consent form is perhaps a little confusing because there's some language in here that patients may not understand. And then the rest of the committee jumps in and says, well, I thought the consent form was fine, or I, I'm worried about Botox, long-term toxicity, or whatever else. And then in the end, they either say, okay, we'll vote to approve it, or we won't, or we'll request modifications. That's what the meeting looks like. 
But behind that, there's a whole architecture uh, that's less obvious and that scientists and even IRB members are less aware of, which is that you can't get before the committee until you've gone through a gauntlet of pre-review steps, which typically involves submitting your proposal through the IRB's software, which tells you what kind of consent form you can use, you should be expecting, and a lot of other factors. And when the IRB changes things like your planned enrollment target, that can make the research either impossible because you may not have enough patients to do a study that large, or it may make the research unwise. Because if you have too few subjects, then you'll go through all that work and you will come up with a result where the probability is not statistically significant, at which point, if you're a pessimist, you go back and debate suicide. If you're an optimist, you say, well, that did not work. I will have to try harder next time. And I'm hoping most scientists just are optimists, but that when the IRB tells you what your subject size, what your enrollment size should be, they're really interfering with something which is at the heart of your proposal. And that's a very serious intervention for them to make. Unfortunately, many IRBs have people who think they their knowledge of statistics and epidemiology justifies their making friendly suggestions which scientists often feel they're obligated to accept. There are all kinds of ways this process can torpedo an important project. And the result, even when it's not ended, is that it's slowed, results are slower, treatments are more slowly developed. And during all these slow processes, people with that condition present to emergency rooms, show up at doctor's offices, and the new treatment's not ready yet, and they suffer and sometimes they die. I want to get to some maybe practical real-life examples that you've seen or studied that have really slowed research enough to harm people. But also, you know, who who is on the IRB? How do people get chosen to be on this um, board? And who oversees the IRB? Most IRBs are composed primarily of faculty or s- staff at the institution at which it serves. But every IRB has one person who is not from the institution and one person who is not a scientist. So there's some lay representation, but most members are. When I was in the Stanford IRB, we had a hematologist, an oncologist, a surgeon. We also had a pastor because he was not from Stanford and not a scientist. He fulfilled both of those obligatory other roles. IRBs are appointed like any other committee in the medical school or hospital. The chair of research, the vice dean of research, whoever that is, appoints them. But there is one important difference. For any other committee, let's say in a medical school, the committee makes a recommendation, and unless there are unusual circumstances, that recommendation holds, and that's what happens. Uh, But now and then, committees lose track of their bearings or of the bigger picture or are just mistaken one way or another. And in this case, the vice dean for research says, you know, I think that requiring these guys, 
requiring this proposal to have twice as many subjects is not really reasonable. And I'm going to just let the proposal go through with the original enrollment target. That's what would happen in a normal committee. The problem is that the IRB is given a presumption of infallibility by the federal regulations. It may seem, well, I was, I was going to say it may seem crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> the dean for research, if the IRB insists on some change, the scientist feels unreasonable and the scientist wants to appeal. The dean for research is forbidden by law from reversing that unreasonable decision and it will stand. So the IRB has ultimate, penultimate authority. Nobody else can change that decision unless it's another IRB itself. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. How did, how did that happen? Well, it, it's actually a fascinating story, which is very short. Uh, I looked very hard to try to figure out why it happened. I looked for traces in the medical record, uh, sorry, in the federal register, which is where reg- regulations are often debated. I looked in the ethics journals. I looked in the medical journals. I couldn't find a whisper anywhere. What I think happened was that the federal officials who were making the revisions around the early 1970s decided that just to make sure that IRBs weren't being too kind to scientists and that institutions weren't overruling their IRBs to make them be too kind. I'm not not explaining that very well. Let me back up. The theory has always been the institutions will privilege the scientist over the subject. And the scientists will do something that's dangerous to the subject. And that that will be in the institution's interest and the institution won't care. And so when the, when the IRB says, this is wrong, these officials said, if the IRB doesn't like it, you can't say it's actually okay. Does that make more sense? Yes. The problem is I'm unaware of any case in which this problem actually happened, that the institution actually said, you may think it's dangerous, but we think it's just fine. Go right ahead. Uh, and in fact, there are many cases where the IRB has been extremely unreasonable And it'd be wonderful to have the dean have the authority to overrule them. But that simply cannot happen. As a result, we have a one-way ratchet in which IRBs can become as restrictive as they want. And nobody can tell them that they're being too restrictive. It's it's just forbidden. And you mentioned these were formed in the 1970s. It was that, I forget when, I think it was in the 90s that this all came out. Is that right? And then what was going on in the 70s? Was it Willowbrook, the Willowbrook experiment? Willowbrook was earlier. It was in the 50s and early 60s. 50s and 60s. Uh, then, then in 1963, there was the Jewish chronic disease hospital scandal in which Chester Southam, an oncologist, injected live cancer cells under the skin of some patients in the hospital. They were unharmed, but when they learned what he had done, they were not happy because he'd never asked them if they had any, any problem with being injected with live cancer cells. This and other problems in the early 60s led to the formation of the early IRB system in 1966. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment was ongoing through this whole time. It started in 1932. And in 1972, the syphilis experiment finally was revealed. And then there was really a tremendous uproar. So the uproar in 1972 
led to the IRB system being cast in the cement of federal law. And that's when the current system took its more or less current form. And if the IRBs are not really accountable or if they're sort of if there's presumption of infallibility, who are they accountable to? Is it the federal government that comes to each institution and you know says, surprise, show me, you know, what studies you've approved recently and we'll tell you if you are being ethical or not? This is where I start tearing out my head. My <laughs> not my head yet, just my hair. Because the federal government has an oversight body. Most regulations in this imperfect world of ours try to balance two considerations. Uh, the AP, EPA tries to promote clean air and water without completely shutting down power, without which we'd have no electricity. So they've got a balancing job. The FDA tries to approve drugs that people need without approving drugs that are dangerous. There's another balancing thing. The agency that oversees IRBs, which is called the OHRP, that agency should also balance the protection of subjects with the promotion of research that will save lives. But this agency sees its only mission as protecting subjects. And therefore, it has never criticized an IRB for being too restrictive. It has only criticized IRBs for being not restrictive enough. I say criticized, that's not really exactly what happens. When OHRP decides an IRB has erred, it has the authority, and on a regular basis, in fact, does, cut off temporarily all federal funding to that institution until the problem is cleared up. For significant research institutions, this amounts to millions of dollars each and every day, not to mention a black eye in the public public press. So this is a very punishing hammer, and they're not afraid to wield it. If you talk with an IRB member about the menace of federal intervention of this kind, they may well say, oh, we don't really think about that. But that's because you're talking to somebody in the lower end of the conference room. If you talk to an IRB chair, and they are being candid with you, they will say the fear of federal punishment is a dominant factor in their consideration. And if there's any question of federal disagreement with their decision, they will always take the safer path. But always taking the safer path means that some important research is hindered, is slowed, or cannot be conducted at all. Are there historical examples? I think perhaps you mentioned some in the book, where the federal government has done that to institutions. And I think maybe you mentioned Hopkins as being one, where they the hammer did come down and these institutions lost quite a bit of money for, for research. Around the turn of the century, uh, the agency shut down about a dozen institutions for varying periods of time. They suffered <laughs> tremendous financial losses until that time, the IRB system had been relatively reasonable. After that time, it became much more terrified, much more fearful, and therefore much more meticulous about making sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed and that nothing of any question 
any possible question would be permitted. Periodically since then, the agency has continued to take similar actions. The problem with this is that although in some cases there are dubious decisions, often there is no problem whatsoever. Often the research that was being done was perfectly sound. The best example of that is the support study. Uh, this was a study to find out how much oxygen very premature infants need to thrive best. Uh, a large group of very distinguished neonatologists got together, planned this study, conducted it, and discovered an important answer, which is that the babies do best with a certain specific range of oxygen, which makes the best trade-off between survival, blindness, and neurological damage, which are the factors that are, have to be balanced. And this was, a, this was an important study. Years after the study was finished, the agency, the federal agency, came back to them and said, we think your consent form did not clearly depict the risk of death from participating in this study. And they threatened to shut down research of all kinds. They threatened to shut down future neonatal research. And the scientists were just baffled because they'd followed best practices. Patients, or the parents of patients, had been informed about the study in a clear way. But you know, if you were born 24 weeks premature, you face roughly a 20% chance of death just from that fact alone. So the chance of death is there no matter what you do. Um, this was bad for two reasons. The first was that it upset and scared and confused the scientists. The second is that the parents became aware of this controversy. And so if you were a parent and you had a child born very prematurely who participated in this study and who went home but had some degree of cerebral palsy or some degree of blindness as a result of the prematurity, you were left with the impression that it was because of the study that your child was harmed. And so these parents who had enrolled their children in the study in good faith believed that they had made a decision that caused permanent harm to their children. This was not true. And it is the most egregious regulatory action I can imagine in this circumstance to make parents think they'd harm their children when they had not. What was the motivation behind doing something like this? Like who drives something like this? Is it scientists and the federal government who goes back to look at this project and, the, and goes to the consent form and says, wait a second? Or was it bureaucratic official? It's just so confusing here in this story as to why someone would would do this. You're right, Aaron. It makes no sense, does it? If I sat down with the head of the agency and we had a couple of beers, there's a chance that he would tell me what he was thinking and what his motivation was. But I do not know what it was. All I know is that this is an agency that is that feels it has to look like it's being a tough cop on the scientist beat. And it's hard to look tough if you never find a problem. And if the scientists are terrified of being punished, maybe there aren't very many problems. You know, the criminal law will never be short 
of murderers, rapists, arsonists, and embezzlers. There's no shortage, and the FBI doesn't have to work hard to look tough. But regulating the scientists is more difficult because they, most of them have good intentions. The ones that don't have good intentions are still afraid of being punished. Those who are afraid of, not afraid of being punished still have IRBs who themselves don't want to be punished. There's a chain that makes moral error in this area much less likely. And so for the agency to show that it's being tough, it has to, it may have to pick some cases where actually it's not that clear there was anything wrong at all. So my guess is the agency wanting to look like the tough cop. I can't tell you that's what they were thinking because I don't know inside their minds. Hmm. Either way, it seems like what, what you say in the book, which is that the IRB has an ultra-conservative approach to risk, that, that this uh, behavior incentivizes this ultra-conservative approach. Oh, yes. Can you give us some examples maybe of how the IRB slows down life-saving research? What have you encountered of late where the IRB has slowed things down enough that you think that they've put patient lives at risk? In a sense, the answer is almost everywhere because medical research is always intended to save lives, reduce suffering, and make treatments better. So anytime you slow down research, you're going to have an impact on people's lives and health. Now, that is not automatically a bad thing. Remember, we decided it's good to have an IRB system, just not this system. And if it's good to have such a system, you have to spend some time and some effort to make it happen. And so research must be slow to a certain extent. But the question is, how much? The best example in which we can quantitate how much research was slowed actually took place in a major international study of heart attacks. I say it was international and included uh, scientists from the US and the UK. Uh, the UK used a very simple consent process and the US used a very elaborate consent process. And an elaborate consent process, if you're lying in a gurney in the emergency room with chest pain and terror, is a difficult thing to go through. And so recruitment in the US went very, very slowly. If it had gone as fast as recruitment in the UK, the study would have been finished about nine months sooner. Now, that may not seem like a, a very large delay, but the, da the data showed that there were about 190,000 heart attacks per year in the U.S. at that time. So we are talking about thousands and thousands of patients who had heart attacks who did not have access to the better treatment because the better treatment was still being developed. My best guess is that between three and 20,000 patients died unnecessarily as a result of that delay. And there's just no excuse for that. That shouldn't happen. Uh, that's the biggest number I know of. But anytime there's a delay that makes no sense, that does no good, that harms us all. Yeah. I, I want to dig into this, the consent issue a bit. It's something that I've personally encountered with my own research. I'm so skeptical of the way we 
approach consent in this country. Uh, you know, you wrote, unfortunately, a consent form that is optimized for protection of the institution takes longer to read than one designed with the subject in mind. It's more difficult to understand and slows research enrollment. Both potential subjects and the research itself suffer. So uh, there was a recent project uh, that I started and I submitted, you know, my IRB proposal and all that and the consent form. And it's a, it's not a interventional trial or anything like that. It's a purely observational study where we use neuroimaging and try to predict prognosis based on you know, clinical scales that we do and so correlate them. You're to, not doing anything to them that could harm them. Right. It's, we use a, an image that has already been obtained as a part of clinical care, and then we correlate it to scales that we do on the patient's questionnaires, basically. How you tired could, do you feel? You could do the entire study while the patient is, is on vacation in Europe. Yeah, because we could, we could do it by phone, honestly, these scales. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it took two and a half months to get approval, and there was a back and forth about the consent form, which is the consent form is now 10 pages. There, the issue that led to a back and forth was about- it, It's crazy. It's crazy. It's, it's totally crazy. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, there was like, we said we were going to de-identify their data. We thought that was sort of sufficient, but then they said, well, what if you use data in the future? You have to tell them how you're going to, how you're, if you're going to share the data that's de-identified, you have to tell them how you're going to be sure that they can't then identify the patients based on the data that they're getting from you. Like if we share the data with outside. So it was, it was a back and forth about this. It was just shocking because it it's such a benign study. What do you think is necessary for a consent form to be kosher or ethical? Like, what needs to change with regards to the way we approach consent in this country? A study like yours to have an ethical consent form, um, an ethical consent process for your study, would look like you contacting the patients and saying, "We're studying this, that, and the other." Is that okay with you if we use your data? And they could say yes or no. In my view, that's an ethical consent process. Subjecting them to a two-page form, uh, spelling out, well, actually, here I get, I get stuck because what are the risks? Risks, there are no risks. I mean, the IRB will say there are risks to everything, which is not true. And the IRB will say there's a risk to re-identification of them. Okay, suppose we could re-identify your subjects. We would learn that they have a particular condition. They had a particular MRI. In what universe would somebody want to re-identify them and then use that information to harm them? It's just not conceivable. The 10-page form is there instead of a two-page form because there are eight pages of stuff you don't need at all. It explains how... Their information won't be used without their permission in any other, any other context. How they have the right, to, do they have the right to withdraw from the study if they choose to partway through? They do. Well, that's so reassuring uh, since it involves nothing on their part anyhow. It's crazy, Aaron. And so the only way to, there are only two ways to make this more reasonable. One is to go back to basics. Go back to the way the system was in 1966 or 72. Studies like yours were never intended to be included into IRB review 
at the system's origin. It has crept and crept and crept until now studies like yours that cannot possibly harm somebody are subject to intensive review. If we can go back to a reasonable system, which we could, then the IRB would make it clear they don't want to hear about your study. If you're not going to do something that could hurt somebody, or if you're not obtaining very sensitive information, that might be a little different. You know, if you're asking about very personal stuff, sure, there should be a consent process for that. But for the ordinary process of clinical care, when you're observing and not doing anything, that should not be subject to IRB review at all. And I see only two ways to make that happen. One is for us as a country to wake up and say, wait a minute, this system is costing lives, makes no money and wasting money. And furthermore, it discourages bright young people from going into research. I can't tell you how many people I've met who would go into a research career if it weren't for the paperwork, the red tape, and in particular, the IRB problems. So it costs us people, costs us knowledge, it costs us lives. And we should do better. It wouldn't be hard to do better. We just have to go back to the way the system was originally with a supervisory system that recognizes that there's a value in one side of the balance in protecting subjects from harm and the other side in enabling research that will save lives to go forward. And you think that this consent process, this kind of overweening, overburdened consent process is a direct result of a defensive research design or regulation where we're not really looking out for the patient. We are looking out for ourselves. We don't want to get sued. We don't want to have the federal government bring the hammer down on us. Is that a correct interpretation of this? Well, the IRB doesn't care very much about you, Aaron, as a researcher, but it does care about the institution and does care about the IRB itself. And it is looking to protect itself against federal punishment. That is the main purpose. And, and in terms of the impact on the patient, this is a burden on the patient. If you said to the patient, I'd like to study your records and ask you a few questions, most patients say, sure. If you then pull out a 10-page consent form, the patient immediately says to themselves, okay, so it's not just about this interesting stuff about questions about what my life has been like and my experience as a patient. I also have to go through this doggone form. That is something they're doing as a favor to you. You're not protecting them. They don't value that form. They are willing to do it because they kind of like you and they think research is a good thing and they want to help other people. And they're willing to submit to the, uh, to the boredom of the consent form just because they're doing you a favor. Is this true in other countries as well, or is this unique to the United States? Other countries struggle with this. Uh, one of the good things about American medical research is that we fund it very lavishly. And a fair amount of that money goes overseas because often U.S. investigators have overseas collaborators or overseas sites. And we have exported the IRB system along with the money. And so all English-speaking countries have similar systems, but they apply them somewhat differently. So in the heart attack example, 
the international consensus, which we're not included in nowadays, is that patients need to be informed that we propose to do some research involving their care, and they can opt out if they want to. It's not mandatory. And there's lots more information available if they'd like it. That's really what most people want to know. And some people, based on that, will say, of course I want to do research. And some people will say, are you kidding? I never want to do research. And some people say, I'd like to learn a little more. And then you tell them more. That seemed to be evolving as the most reasonable response to patients' desire to know something at a time when they're really not interested in learning a lot about something that isn't vital to their needs as they lie there in that gurney. One of the points you make in the book, or one of the, I think you kind of hint at this, that there's a benefit perhaps to participating in research studies, that patients may do better overall if they participate in research studies than if they don't, even if they get a placebo, because there's a closer eye on them. Can you maybe talk to us a bit about this? Do you think that's true? Is there, uh, how much data is there to suggest this? There's been quite a lot of work trying to find out if there is difference, either for the good or for the ill, in participating in research. Because as you pointed out, some people in research get the placebo. Of course, sometimes getting the placebo is by far the better thing to get, because it turns out that the new treatment is harmful or dangerous or occasionally fatal. Uh, you can't find out if it works or not without recognizing that it might work to the wrong, in the wrong direction. So the research that's looked at this has, I, I'm unaware of any major study showing that participating in research overall is bad for patients. I'm aware of a couple of studies suggesting that at least in some circumstances, you are better off being in the study, no matter whether you're in the placebo arm or the active treatment arm, uh, than if you were not in it. And there are several reasons for this. One may be, as you said, that the, if you're in a research program, then that protocol has been looked at very carefully by people who are expert in the field and who have an interest in applying it very precisely to your care. So they're, they're not going to take shortcuts or make guesses when there are facts and data available to guide them and the protocol tells them what to do. You will hear doctors and patients sometimes complaining about cookbook medicine. I think they've got that completely backward. If a group of experts spent a long weekend in Bethesda trying to figure out what the best care for my problem might be, and they have come up with what you might call a cookbook, an algorithm to do this and then do that, but to stop if something else happens, then cookbook medicine is what I, as a patient, want every single time. I don't want somebody making things up if there's a rule book to follow. I just think I'll do better with that. And so participating in research it probably is helpful, certainly is not harmful. The current system, you write in the book, is so inefficient that its costs cannot be justified. How do we reform the system such that we balance informed consent, appropriate oversight, and ethical constraints with rapid approval and conduct of research? What, would, what do we say to Congress? What do we ask our representatives to do? We 
tell, tell a representative, you know, you're spending a lot of my tax money on the NIH and its research programs. And in addition, I'm a generous donor to the disease-related charity of my choice, Parkinson's disease or breast cancer, or whatever. And I have just learned that a significant fraction of my money goes to paying for photocopiers and staff and people who are spending real-time money and effort making sure that Aaron's consent form at 10 pages long doesn't omit the possibility of re-identification at some future time if the de-identified data is given to other researchers. That is a crazy use of my money, and I'm not happy about it. Some of that money also goes to the scientists to fill out the form. Some of it paid your salary to try to figure out what the IRB wanted to respond to it. Some of it paid for the delay. And so this is all wasted money, and Congress should be upset about it. Donors should be upset about it. And at this time when Congress, Congress has issues, Congress is not always fully functional. Uh, but I think that the Republican members of Congress uniformly are opposed to death by cancer. The Democratic members of, concert, of Congress have no fondness for Parkinson's disease. I think we could get those people to agree that in this small area, they might take an afternoon off from bickering and just give us a better system. Is this too much to ask? Last question. How optimistic or pessimistic are you about potential improvements to the system? Do you think we are too, I don't know, we're too far down the rabbit hole to recognize what is going on? And then a second part, to this question. What has the response been to your book? Have people said that, wow, okay, this opened my eyes. We really need to make some changes. Well, the scientists know about this problem already. And they're very happy the book is out and they hope their friends, they give it to their friends. What I'm hoping is they give it to their friends who are on the National Academy of Medicine, who know people in Congress who might make something happen, because I have no such elite connections. I'm a retired family doctor, and I can't talk to Congress. That is something that might happen. It's an uphill slug, slog because the current system is defended vigorously by the regulators who run it. And most ethicists feel that we can't go back to Tuskegee, therefore we need to have this system. And they defend it. They oppose any change. What I've been trying to persuade my fellow ethicists is that, yes, we need a system, but we do not need this system. Saints preserve us. This system is the worst system I can imagine. It's also an uphill slog to change it because the system is so invisible. I've never met a patient who's heard of the IRB system, and most doctors have never heard of it either because they either get new treatments and they learn of new treatments in their journals or from other sources, uh, but they're not really involved in the nuts and bolts behind the screen. So it's only the doctors who work in academic medical centers who are aware of how much of a problem it is. And they are cautious about complaining about something that is painted as being ethics in action. They don't want to look unethical. That's why I spent a significant fraction of the book explaining this is may, may have been ethical uh, ethics at one point, but at this point, it's just pure, mindless bureaucracy. 
And that gets no ethical stamp of approval from me. On that note, I recommend everyone read From Oversight to Overkill by Dr. Simon Whitney. Thanks, Simon, for taking the time today. This is a great conversation. Thank you, Aaron. It's been mostly a pleasure, although it reminds me of some things we need to change, but that's okay. That's what you're, you're here for. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.